welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Steve Lang as my guest here in studio on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Steve is the president and CEO of the New Jersey-based furniture dealer, Danker. Danker is more than a furniture dealer. They specialize in creating space that brings people and technology together to help drive a company's performance. They offer complete architectural, furniture, technology, and logistics solutions to many of the Fortune 500 companies up and down the East Coast. The company was named among the 50 fastest growing companies in New Jersey and has won many awards and recognitions for its successes over the years. Steve joined Danker in 1997 and has led the company through the ever-changing world of corporate office furniture and has overseen their tremendous growth. In May of 2016, Steve was named EY Entrepreneur of the Year in New Jersey, acknowledging entrepreneurs whose integrity, spirit of innovation, and discipline have propelled their company's success and benefited their communities. I've known Steve for several years now, and I'm excited to dive into this conversation with him. Steve, thanks for taking the time after the long weekend uh, to, to be my guest here. Christian, thank you very much. Happy to be here with you. Awesome. So we're going to get into a bunch of different things. We'll talk furniture and then obviously other, other things that Danker does. Uh, but I'm going to pretend as though many in our audience don't really know what uh, a furniture dealer does. So, you know, I've had many guests um, on this sort of a cross section of the design profession from architects to interior designers to workplace strategists, engineers, we even had a lawyer uh, on as well. Um, and I wanted to have you on as many listeners do not understand or even maybe cross paths with the furniture side of the profession. Uh, in many cases, you know, it's the final leg of a corporate interiors project. Uh, it can make or break the project, quite frankly. Um, the furniture dealers actually stay with the clients many times beyond the designer, um, which is pretty interesting. And, and many dealers hold those relationships. Um, and the furniture dealer is a big deal in the, in the process of things. So can you explain what a furniture dealer does? I can, but to do so, I need to say that it's the, the anti-furniture dealer uh, <laughs> model. So, you know, that is clearly our core business. Our core business is commercial office furniture. But, you know, I've been with the company now for almost 25 years, and I've watched our industry and certainly our business um, go through tremendous change. So, Today, while the core business is still furniture, and you know as well as I do that furniture, specific furniture, has changed specifically in very, very, very many ways, including you know systems furniture to open plan, back to some level of privacy. But the business really is furniture, architecture. Uh, when I say architecture, I mean the architectural elements, architectural walls and the like. Um, technology and logistics, and in in many ways. 
Um, you mentioned that we are there long after the design firm or the architectural firm leaves. And in many cases, we are a large facility management company. You know, we're there to augment and support the day-to-day facility management of all the clients that we're, you know, happy to and, and privileged to, to help manage. So we do that in a number of ways, but mostly through services and managing all of the moves, ads, and changes that are inevitable in uh, commercial office space. So architecture, furniture, technology, and logistics. And we'll talk a little bit later, I'm sure, about how those things are starting to um, coincide with each other in a way that I think if if we, you guys, and, and companies like ours do our jobs, um, there's a better end product as a result. And then, so how is it how is it broken up? I mean, I, obviously, I know a little bit about how it works, but you know, you are a steel case dealer, right? Correct. Meaning that you know, steel case as a major manufacturer, they give you or you have the rights to sell their product. Is that how it works? Correct. Remarkably, the entire relationship with Steelcase and its dealers around the country, or really the entire North American continent, is on a handshake. Okay. And we've been a Steelcase dealer since the inception. I think it was 1937. Of Steelcase. With Steelcase. Um, we also represent about 200 other major lines. So Steelcase, while very important to us, is not the only thing that we do. Um, although we represent them in New Jersey and the New York metropolitan region and in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore most recently. Right, right. And so with that, what what are some of the other, you know, major lines of furniture that are out there? You know, there are so many and so today even more so more specialized lines. So if you think of the Halcon that was just recently um, in, involved with Steelcase, you think of Kimball, uh, you know, a private office or more office, um, you know, wood related product. There are many uh, seating companies that we deal with, uh, a lot of middle market seating companies. I say middle market, you know, companies that are 20 or 30 million to 70 or 80 million dollars and they use us uh, as their field sales force. Sit on it comes to mind. Um, there's a million manufacturers, a million's a lot. There's a couple <laughs> hundred manufacturers and they're all, they all have their unique niche. And, and, you know, hopefully if we're doing our job, we're helping companies like yours and ultimately clients make the right choice of products to meet not only budget demands, but to meet the right application, product application. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about that and doing that hopefully in a progressive way. How how big is Steelcase of a company? Steelcase is uh, three billion, wow. three and a half billion, somewhere and in that it's neighborhood. it's a global company? They are a global company uh, based here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but they do business around the globe and they market themselves as Steelcase. They are on a little bit of a um, an acquisition tear. They've, they've acquired a couple of small companies to fill out their portfolio of products. Uh, they have a significant market share in, here in the U.S. and in Europe, and they're building market share in Asia. So now this model where the furniture dealer essentially sells the, the that product, is that the same model in other countries? No, quite frankly, it's very different. In fact, hmm. um, what I understand about the European model is it's a little more of a direct model for Steelcase. There are dealers. There are distributors. The dealers look a little different than the dealers in the U.S. The dealers in the U.S. are... Uh, you know, full service commercial interiors companies, many of them do, um, you know, facility management, as I mentioned. Uh, so in the UK specifically, there are some company owned stores, if you will, companies that Steelcase owns that they manage the distribution network. And then the other ones in different parts of Europe, Europe is so segmented. Uh, they have uh, dealers, but they're not the same as you would think of a dealer in the US. Okay. 
So, so normally, <laughs> I ask guests the question, if you had to pick one thing, uh, what annoys you about architects? So I, I'll get back to that. But <laughs> I'm going to ask in a little bit different way for you. For, um, uh, for you. Um, what are the problems you get blamed for on a project when the furniture goes bad that are really the architect or designer's fault? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Um, listen, ultimately, there's a lot we could get blamed for. And when we're working together as an integrated project team, that happens less. I think if, if I were to just you know, sort of summarize, it really is when the architect, the client, the design firm choose a team and that we work through the plans and the drawings um, on a systematic basis. That's when we avoid the problems. But there are many. I mean, I I can't tell you how many times we've had uh, just in scheduling, right? I mean, that isn't really necessary architectural, but just in scheduling where, you know, contractors are using our desks to finish putting the ceiling in. And that typically is that typically is a problem for us because if it's a if it's a nice wood veneer desk, it it definitely could create an issue. So um, there are many examples, you know, conditions, site conditions, columns, uh, poke throughs. Gosh, I don't even know where to start. You guys, you guys are awesome. You guys are awesome when you engage us early and often. Okay, that's fair enough. Fair okay. enough. I mean, I know plenty of the those, but you're absolutely correct. It's yeah, and I didn't come here to architect bash. I love you guys. No, I know, I know, but it, <laughs> it is. It, it's also a learning experience, right? As you go, I, I think absolutely. you make you you know designers make those ex, those mistakes early on. They didn't properly measure, or they didn't measure. They measured to the window, but they didn't measure to the convector. You know, that's in front of the window, and oops, it turns out that that space where all those you know, 200 desks have to fit is actually a foot shorter than uh, than it's supposed to be, right? And Listen, at our best, we take whatever mistakes you may have missed because you're looking at the big picture and the broader envelope and we're down to the floor plate and maybe this corner of the floor. Um, at our best, we'll find that before the product is ordered, we'll make the correction for you or with you and the client really isn't engaged in a problem because there isn't one. Right. Uh, perfect. That's so that leads ideal. me to my, uh, to my, we're going to play a little game. Uh oh. So uh, like let's say that uh, Mancini specified 10 bar height stools from Steelcase or wherever, mm -hmm. uh, but they were actually supposed to be counter height. Ooh. Um, and these things could be, you know, 2000 bucks each, right? Uh, easily. Um, this is a, an example that happens all the time. I know for fact, right? It's a very subtle difference between bar height and counter height. Subtle but very important <laughs> exactly. difference. So, uh, so A, B, or C, you tell the architect or designer uh, they made a huge mistake. You show them how they made that mistake and say, hey, you owe 20000 bucks." Or B, you go to the manufacturer and you say, hey, listen, turns out these are wrong. Can you please replace them at your cost? Or C, you go back to the manufacturer and you cover the cost of them. How do you how do you answer that question? D, raise the height of the surface. <laughs> nice, I like. That. No, um, listen. More often than not, and this is I think what you get when you get a company like ours. We're large. Um, we're capable. We've been doing this for a very long time, and you know we don't like to make problems or make anyone's problems your problems or anyone else's. So because of our relationship with the manufacturer, we typically would just you know make that happen behind the scenes, yeah. and it really shouldn't be an issue. I mean, if you're talking about a couple hundred chairs, there may be a different issue, <laughs> uh, but you know something like that is. Um, 
what we do. And listen, the other thing that's interesting these days is lead times being what they are with product, we may be able to have caught it before it was manufactured. Yeah. And that's where, the, you know, we, we one of our core values is the details matter. And in our business as yours, right, the details really matter. And so we're checking that specification. We're doing some field measure, field dimension. So theoretically, we'll catch that way before the product comes in and we'll know that, oops, it's bar height, right. not Right. Counter height, hopefully. <laughs> no, and it's true. A, a company like yours, and 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 plenty other, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, well, there there are plenty of really good commercial. I, I I like the term commercial interiors integrator. I like that. Yeah. So there are plenty of good commercial interiors integrators. Yeah. How do you guys, if it's if you're not being specified for an architect uh, by an architect or a designer, how do you find your clients typically? Say that again. How do how do we find if you're not being spec'd directly? You know, it's a steel case spec or something, and you're, you're sort of competitive bid on the furniture side of thing. Mm -hmm. How are you seeking out a lot of your clients? Um, a number of different ways. Most of which is referral business, right? We we work with a team. That team has now been deployed. You know, be it project manager, architect, design firm, um, construction firm, have been deployed to a new job. Some of the same people are on that job, and they'll call us. That's probably the first and best way we get. Um, new opportunities. Um, very little of our business is pure bid business. In fact, I really try to instruct our teams not to waste time, you know, just chasing a bid. If we don't have a relationship, uh, if we don't know some of the players and the decision makers, you know, happy to put a number in to keep somebody happy. But it's not a it's not a chunk of business that we're we're really interested in. Um, that's not to say we don't do bid business, right? In fact, many of our clients say, okay, so we like you, but we're taking you out to bid, and that happens. Yep. Um, but, you know, the, the best price isn't the lowest price, isn't always the lowest price. And, you know, I think for us, um, because we represent Steelcase, because we represent uh, or support many of the Fortune 500 companies in our region, um, you know, we're not the cheapest, and right. hopefully we're near the best. Right. Now, if I wanted to buy or someone wanted to buy a Knoll chair, how does that work? Can I go through you or? Sure. You can? Yeah. Okay. But we're not a Knoll dealer. Got it. So you're and not going to get we're preferred not a, pricing? Is we're not a Miller Knoll dealer. Is? So there's this sort of thing in the industry that if it's a onesie twosie thing, we'll get an accommodation from a Knoll dealer, the Knoll dealer will get an accommodation from us. But on a big project, and this is just the way the industry works today, Miller Knoll is now one company. You know, Their distribution network is wed to Miller Knoll. Steelcase's distribution networks is uh, distribution network, excuse me, is wed to Steelcase, and the two shall never meet. So on large projects, they effectively are aligned with the key manufacturer, just like we're aligned with Steelcase. Okay, and so how did this model come to be? Do you know the origins of it? Where it's almost like you're, I mean, you're you're doing more than just selling, right? You're you're doing the as you as you talked about. There's a lot of things that you do. One of them is the logistics side of things. One of them is actually the install. A lot of the you know connections. You've got electricians. You're, you've got trucks and warehouses, and it's a it's a massive operation that you've got going. How did this come to be? Where essentially you're you're selling, or you, they're selling through you essentially. So you know, I would say through the lens of Steelcase, and that's the one I've known for 25 plus two years at Steelcase, so 27 years. Um, one of their most important assets is their distribution network, of which Danker is is a is a main one. Mm -hmm. um, how did it evolve? You know, Steelcase had been the metal office furniture company back in the 30s and 40s. Um, 
They did a phenomenal job of making products based in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and they realized that in order to sell those products, they needed to align with locally represented entrepreneurial companies that understood the market. And hmm. where we do business, and, and the irony is we, we've changed where we've done business, so we're primarily you know, East Coast, Mid-Atlantic, but 40% of our business goes somewhere else in the United States because of our corporate relationships here in the Northeast and, and Mid-Atlantic. But I think it's, it's, a, it's a core competency of Steelcase, and therefore some of the other major furniture manufacturers don't have as solid of a distribution network. Okay. And I don't say that about Danker as a company. I say that about the Steelcase dealer network across the country. Um, some of the strongest, most capable, uh, deepest organizations in terms of knowing the client, supporting the client in the local market, and then doing all that stuff. And, and we could spend three hours on what the stuff is, but that stuff and that detail makes Steelcase look great and makes the client have a really awesome experience. Sure. And all that stuff we do in the middle is um, is the hard work. That's yeah. our special sauce. Yeah, no, it definitely is. There's a, yeah. there's a lot that goes into that. So let's talk a little bit about... Um, so I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but my wife is also in the corporate office uh, furniture world. Uh, she even helped me with some of those questions at bar height. Uh, yeah, counter height was her was her help on that one. On the record, she's awesome. Yeah, oh, thank you. Um, so another friend of ours that we know, uh, a fellow by the name of Mike Messenger, we were having dinner with him. This was many, many years ago. And... Um, in that, he was asking the people around the table who happened to be a lot of furniture people, my wife is one of them, um, you know, saying, no one ever says to themselves when they're a little boy or a little girl growing up, you know, man, when I grow up, I really want to be in the corporate office furniture. How did you get into the profession? Well, now, Christian, I'm different because <laughs> when, I was a, when I was a little boy, I went to my mom and dad and said, I want to be a commercial office furniture company. <laughs> Executive. No, you know, it's so funny that you say that and, and just thinking about, um, you know, career and career choices. Um, heading into college and as I was like sort of my middle college years, I wanted to be an ad executive, like account executive for a big ad agency. And I was like really excited about that. Didn't turn out too well for me, but that's what I wanted to do. Um, went to work for Mobile Oil out of college, went to this awesome management training program for 18 months in Fairfax, Virginia, and they sent me out on my way after being in this management training program. Spent a few more years at Mobile, got my master's in uh, finance, and then I, like a headhunter, got a hold of my resume and said, hey, what do you know about Steelcase? And I thought Steelcase was that earth-moving equipment company case, you know, on the, yeah. the, the yellow. I thought it was like, I was like, I don't really know anything about Steelcase. And then I started interviewing, spent a couple of years at Steelcase. And then this is the cool thing. When I got to Steelcase, I realized, you know, it was much like mobile in that it was a big corporation. I had some really big corporation background and training. But at Steelcase, what I really enjoyed was working with the dealers, the distributors. They were professionally run middle market companies. Um, there was an entrepreneurial spirit to all of them. And I got to work with many of them up and down the East Coast. Um, I managed through and helped some planning and succession planning. So I got to see how they you know, transferred from one owner to another. Um, my role was a, like a business consultant within Steelcase. And it, it sort of hit me one day. I'm like, this, this is an awesome business. I don't actually love furniture. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, it's, and it sounds silly, but I really don't like furniture. I don't not like it, but I don't love furniture. <laughs> I am, I'm a student of and a practitioner in the game of business. Yeah. 
Like that's really what this is about for me. So yes, furniture is interesting and it helps solve a problem hopefully. And it's fun to do a presentation about space. And my dad was um, in construction. My dad was a union carpenter. So I got to build stuff and this is kind of like building stuff, although I'm I'm around it, right? So so I I heard, and we'll get to this later if you want, I'll I'll tell you all the things that my dad said about architects as a construction construction guy. But uh, yeah, I just, I don't know how I tripped over this business, but 25 years later, here we are. So. And, and knowing you and knowing your business side of things, right? And I, I feel like, you know, Danker has the ability to do so much under that umbrella, right? Because you're in with all of those clients and you've got the infrastructure that really the sky's the limit for you. And we'll talk a little bit about the pandemic and kind of where things have gone from there. Mm. But I think it's companies like yours, like mine, that are nimble enough and really think of, of what the profession they're in as just simply part of anything and everything that they can do going forward that really makes it sort of an exciting time that things do change and that's okay. You know, we can do so much more with the platform that essentially we've been, you know, not given, but, but totally agree. Uh, worked, totally agree. worked our way up in. So where, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Northwestern New Jersey in Morris County. Okay. Um, I went to Roxbury high school ah. in Northwestern New Jersey, lived right near Lake Copacong. Okay. You know that area? Um, yeah, I was uh, a youngin back in the day, back up in North Jersey. And so one of my questions was, what did your parents do? So you said your father was in construction. So my dad was a, a union carpenter, barely got his GED, barely got out of high school. My mom was a secretary, also didn't go to college. I was the first one in my family to go to uh, to college. And they, listen, I was very, very fortunate. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Uh, you know, my parents always told me that I could do anything I wanted to do as long as I put the energy and effort forward to to get it, right? And it was um, on some level inspiring, you know, from from two people that came from, I came from a very middle, middle class upbringing, but the values were there and the hard work was there. And my dad worked his butt off and uh, so did my mom. And I remember my sister, I have a younger sister, two years younger, and she would, uh, we'd come home from school when we were in grade school and, you know, we'd have to get dinner ready because mom was working and then dad was working. And so we we made it work. That was when MTV, when I, I watched the first video on MTV oh, with nice. my sister in the living room. Yeah. Video just, killed the radio Just like star. it is for your kids. You, you, yeah, yeah, it's you the come same. home and your, yeah. your, your dinner's made for you, right? <laughs> same. All right. So what did then, did your, uh, what did your father have to say about uh, architects? Well, he always, you know, I, I vividly remember him combing over the big plans that were laid out on the the two um, wooden horses and oh, a yeah. piece of plywood, right? So like he's literally on the job site. They and do I, it that way. I know. And I put up a ton <laughs> of metal stud and drywall when I was like 16, 17 years old. Oh, cool. And he would, you know, he did this thing with his, I can't do it, but he did this thing with his head and he'd scratch the side of his head and he goes, he just, ah, damn architects got this thing in the wrong place. This doesn't make any sense. And he took the measurement and took the next measurement. He goes, ah, this is wrong. And he would mark up the drawing. He goes, next time Bob comes in, I got to show him this. You know, the architect would visit the site, uh-huh. right? And he's like, oh yeah. So he, he almost made it his mission to find the architect's mistakes <laughs> and then correct them on site, which um, usually went pretty well. I, I would say my, my dad was um, was pretty creative when it came to that stuff. Very good with his hands. Oh, I, that's good. I wish I had the skills that he had. Um, I remember driving home from the metal stud and drywall days, and uh, falling asleep in the car on the ride home, and him telling me, "If you want to, if you want to keep doing what you're doing, then don't go to school and do what I did. If you want to get out of this mess, <laughs> you probably should go to college." 
So I took his advice. So tell me a little bit about your journey through Danker. Because you, as you said, you've worked there for the majority of your career. Right? I mean, Crazy it's enough. almost 25 years, I think. When I looked on your LinkedIn, it was 24 July years, will be 25. Months. Yeah, July will be 20. June or July will be 25 years. Yeah. So kind of a kind of an interesting- To where um, now you're you're the majority owner of the, of the company I am. as well. I am. So this is a I pretty am. cool story. So how, yeah, how did a, you how'd you do this? I'm most proud of this story, <laughs> actually. Um, so when I joined Danker, I had only been with Steelcase for two years, and I joined the company because I, I, I knew I wanted to be this entrepreneurial business owner, and this looked like if, if it wasn't going to be in the advertising agency business, this was the next best thing, even though I don't really care for furniture. Um, so I, I, I took a hard look at what I was doing at Steelcase. Got really fell in love with the entrepreneurs on the dealer side, and joined one. And when I joined the company, I, I sort of made a deal with myself, saying, "Look, if I do this for a couple of years, I'll learn enough to go be able to do this on my own somewhere." Um, so about four, four or five years in, I went to the then board of directors. We always had an outside board of directors in the company. It's always been a very professionally run. A privately held company. Uh, my former mentor and partner, Scott Douglas, was then the majority owner. His father, Mr. Douglas, and Mr. Danker, the namesake of the company, were both around, um, both of whom are deceased now. And I, I remember going to them and saying, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm ready to leave. I, I'm ready to leave. I want to go do this somewhere else in the country. I'm not going to compete with you in the Northeast, but I, I think I want to go to Steelcase or another manufacturer and explore the idea of, of buying a business in this commercial space. And I thought I'd either one of two things would happen. I thought I'd either get fired or they'd understand. <laughs> and I was willing to take the risk that, well, maybe they're going to fire me. You know, like, hey, if you don't like it here, here's the door, right? And, and so a couple of really remarkable things happened that I didn't think would happen. Um, not only did they not fire me, they started asking me a lot of questions about my career and my future. Now, Scott had four children all younger than me. Um, and then our board of directors invited me, a few of them invited me to speak with them privately, went to Florida to visit one. And what came about from that is, well, if if you think you want to leave and you want to be, you want to do this, maybe you can be um, – you know, a smaller, you're going to be a small fish in a small pond if you go to some tertiary market, something that I could afford, you know, with friends and family and money I'd saved. But, you know, we think you might be able to do that here at Danker. And I thought, well, that's odd. Scott has four children and there's no way that's going to happen. <laughs> and, um, and you know, Scott Douglas, he's mm -hmm. a wonderful, I mean, the Douglas family has been phenomenal to me. And um, anyway, so we had this this candid, very candid conversation, and and it became very clear that maybe I could build a career and gain some equity within Danker. And so we charted a course to do that. I built the sweat equity plan with the help of of Scott and the board, and uh, bought out a retiring shareholder who was our CFO at the time. And uh, we uh, I, at that point, I guess I had like ten percent of the company, and then wound up with fifteen because of some buybacks. And then in 2012, I guess it was, um, we pulled the trigger on um, on Scott's succession plan, which put me in a position of being the majority, significant majority um, shareholder of the company and created a, pardon my French, shitload of debt. And uh, I had personal guarantees out the wazoo. 
and uh, a friendly bank at the time. Until things don't go well, then they're not so friendly. <laughs> uh, and you know, we we navigated. We 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 got um, was able to get Scott a pretty handsome deposit and paid him uh, down uh, two years early. And we had an ESOP employee stock ownership plan. I'm proud to say that we purchased the ESOP back from the employees at the highest level that had it been uh, since its inception. And then I found myself with 100% of the company, which is um, almost bizarre, but it it all came together with the help of a board of directors, with the help of some really great advisors, and candidly, a a really good business model and great clients. Yeah. And all those things came together in a in a perfect world. And some days I say to myself, I feel like I won the business lottery. Um, and so I, I was able to afford some of my team. Uh, I have a right and a left arm, my CFO and my uh, senior VP GM. Uh, they each have a piece of the business, and we're now working through a longer term succession plan. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's pretty a, it's cool. It's an amazing story. It really is. And you should be proud of it because not only did that happen sort of as you grew up in the ranks, but the, the company's also grown tremendously. I mean, it is a big company that you own and run. And I, I, I'm sure that at night, sometimes you close your eyes and go, oh man, <laughs> I own a very large Yeah, so there's a couple hundred employees and a, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's substantial. And the thing, that, the thing I think about more than the size of the company, although I do sometimes lay awake at night, I don't worry about it, but I do think about it. The company started in 1829. I mean, literally 1829. And the origins of the company go back to this guy who was building roll-top desks in Manhattan on Fulton Street before the streets were paved. Cool. And the the thing about this company, and it's a you know privately held middle market company, I feel like I'm the current steward of a company that existed way before me and needs to exist way beyond my, you know, tenure. Mm-hmm. And I, I just feel like I'm I took it and now I need to build it and hand it off to somebody else someday. And, you know, that's a that's a process and it doesn't just happen. And it's um something that I'm spending a fair amount of time thinking about these days. And listen, that so that's very, very similar to Mancini, right? Mancini yeah, is a hundred year old company. I am just a, you know, myself and my partners, we are just a portion of time in yeah. that in that ownership. And we are looking, you know, we, we say this all the time to the younger generation within the, you know, within the firm, like, hey, you know, at some point we're going to move on and you guys are going to be the people to take this over. And I think for some, that's a little bit, it's exciting. And, and some is daunting. It's like, wait, like, what? Whoa, what does that mean? <laughs> Why me? <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it's interesting how you see people react in that. What do you see as your role today at Danker? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, so many things. One of the things I learned from, from Scott Douglas, my mentor, is Scott later in his career found a way to make himself professionally irrelevant. And I didn't understand what he was doing at the time because I was the guy kind of filling in the gap and pawing in the dirt. And so while I'm not ready to make myself professionally irrelevant, um, I am trying to build an enterprise-wide organization where it isn't about me or one or two or three of us. It's about a middle market company thinking about the enterprise value of the organization. In other words, how do we expand? I talked earlier about architecture, furniture, technology, and logistics. You know, in a perfect world, all those businesses would be the same size and be in many different places. Um, That's a nice hedge against the future. You know, the commercial interior space, not just the furniture piece of the commercial interior space. So that's a big part. I I like to, you know, I think... all of my people, you know, my direct reports and our other managers, I like to talk about superpowers, right? Everyone has superpowers in their leadership and their 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 life. And I think one of my superpowers is trying to 
envision or build the company of the future, what it needs to be, what it shouldn't be, what it what it could be ultimately. And so I'm I'm spending more and more time. Not uh, certainly after COVID, that 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 was a major. Um, potential derailer, but spending more of my time trying to work on the next generation of leadership and imparting whatever wisdom I've been able to mm-hmm. to 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 um, to gather over the years and sort of give it back and help those that are going to come behind me be more successful. So ultimately, I guess the way to say it is make more space. That doesn't mean stop doing my job. I don't really like to play a lot of golf. It means make more space. Be be a leader at the highest level and allow other people to lead. You know, if you know around and through the company. Sure. Nice. So you mentioned the pandemic. Um, you know, let's talk about it a little bit. You know, no one wants to go to an office. Everybody wants to work from home. Blah blah blah. I got it. Um, so, uh, and you know, as the designer of a lot of office space, you know, yeah. this uh, definitely during the height of the pandemic, when apparently nobody was ever going to go to an office ever again. <laughs> That seemed like a problem. But now that we're through it and people are returning to the office, and I think people do enjoy that experience of the office. And yes, the office is different. Um, and we could talk about what that is. Um, you know, how have you seen the corporate interiors refined as companies come back to work? Um, you know, you look back to look forward sometimes. And, you know, years ago, cubicles we're going to solve everybody's problem. And then they didn't. And, you know, right before the pandemic, a lot of big commercial real estate thinking was open plan, get everyone out, pull people out of the private offices and make the space a little more dense. And that was a real estate strategy. There's nothing wrong with it from a real estate strategy perspective. Frankly, it was a good real estate strategy, but it wasn't a very good people strategy. And whether the pandemic had hit or not, nobody was happy going to this open plan office environment. Some were because there was some more collaboration. So post-pandemic, here's what I believe. I believe that offices and, – and let's separate like you know the healthcare world. Sure. You know, we do healthcare. We do education. Like they never stop working, right? right. They were just – they're knee right. deep. So let, let's segregate and talk specifically about the office environment, white-collar office workers. If corporate America doesn't create a true destination for their corporation, um, their culture and the way people communicate, collaborate, and solve complex problems together won't be as good as the ones that do. And I just think it's a fundamental it, – it, it's almost that competitive, right? When things – when the dust settles and maybe we're finally starting to see the dust settle, space should be – the physical environment should be a destination. Not the only place you do work. Just like you can watch a movie at the movie theater. You can watch it on Netflix. You can watch it on your iPad. You can watch it on your phone. But people still go to the movie theater yeah. for a reason. It's about the experience. Yeah. And I believe that in the future, people – and today, people are coming back to the office for the experience. It's a different experience than trying to work remotely 100 percent of the time. That was an outstanding synopsis of, Thank of, you. of the return. I, I haven't heard it that concise in a long time. I, I, I think that was that was amazing. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, so, you know, what what have you observed on sort of from from Danker's point of view that you think has permanently changed in post pandemic in the office environment? Well, from a business perspective, one of the things that's changed is 
will will probably all have some version of hybrid other than our operations people who who never went home. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a business perspective, I think there's there's work can be done as we were learning before pandemic, right? Work can be done in more places than the office. From a what what changes permanently, I, I think there's a lot more there will be a lot more rigor around what safety and security really mean. You know, in a post 9-11 world, it's been 20 years now since 9-11 or or more. And we still, in major cities, there's still a security, right? There's still a sign-in. There's still a, can I see your license, right? All those things happened from 9-11. And those of us that grew up in or or from the Northeast, um, you know, felt 9-11 maybe differently than people that, that, that hadn't been, you know, very local. Um, so I think this pandemic is going to bring a different lens to health and safety. And I don't mean health and safety from like an HR perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean really through the lens of ultimate Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Do people feel safe and do they feel secure and healthy? And if they can feel safe and secure, healthy is really almost a personal responsibility. But if they feel safe and secure, they're able to do more. So whether it's, and you probably see this, whether it's in the HVAC system, whether it's in how we think about the space in a post-pandemic that still gives you that level of safety and comfort, that's part of the destination, right? Mm -hmm. That's part of the experience. If it's a great experience, I'm going to want to come back for more. Sure. Now, do you think that there's a, let's call it a disparity between, you know, those that have to, that have to be in the office, the warehouse people, right. And, and those, and the white collar workers, as you call them, right. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you see that ultimately being a problem and how can that be, you know, if the, I mean, I guess as I think about it, the salesperson was always out and about, right? Didn't always have to be in the office. And, you know, the old line was, well, I'm a salesperson. I shouldn't be in the office kind of thing, right? Um, But now you've kind of got everybody that doesn't necessarily have to be at their computer at the office. Do you think that creates an imbalance? It it does. It it does. And I want to talk about that for a second, but I want to put a label on something. I think there's a I think there's a general malaise of the white collar worker who got very he or she got very comfortable working remotely. And some of the malaise comes from I'm not safe at work, so therefore I'm just going to stay at home. But I'm going to go to the grocery store, I'm going to go see a movie, I'm going to travel around town, I'm going to go on vacation with all my friends, I'm going to go on vacation to a foreign destination where there's 16 other countries and people there walking around at the pool. <laughs> so it, there's a malaise, right? There's a, there's a sort of a comfort level. And I think, I believe you're going to see uh, corporate America starting to call people back, not mandatory, but call them back, invite them back. Sure. Um, there, there definitely is a have and have not environment, right? There are the people that can work remotely and there are people that just can't work remotely. Break that down. Part of that is if you choose, let's use Danker as an example. If you've chosen to be an, operation, an operations person, let's say you're a lead installer, um, you know, you're packing the truck, you're taking the stuff out or you're meeting the product on site. Your job is physically with your hands and you do that really great work and you like that work. It keeps you out of the office, right? Because right. you like doing it. So those people are, they've chosen to do that as a, as a career, as a, as a profession. Um, some of our clients, like, you know, attorneys are having a hard time figuring out how to get back because they're still productive at home. They get billable time. They get to do what they do. It's really about reading documents, being on calls. So why do they need to be in an office? Right. 
Well, we're missing out on all of that sort of happenstance meeting and that social interaction. When I say social, I don't just mean how are the kids and how was the weekend. I mean like, ooh, I didn't know about that project and hey, tell me more or social in terms of I'm mentoring somebody and how well am I mentoring them if I'm not sitting next to them and, and you know, checking their eye contact and their body language. So I, I do think there's a there's a it's a problem that hasn't been solved yet, but it's a problem that's going to continue to fester. Yeah. I believe. Yeah. I agree. And, and we see that in our office too, right? I mean, there's nothing that beats going and sitting at someone's desk and on a design, reviewing it, or having an intern come and, and be part of that discussion and seeing why it, it does work or doesn't work. Or even the other day, I walked by and <clears throat> saw something on somebody's computer said, what are you working on? And they said, oh, we're working on this. And I said, oh, that's interesting. You know, maybe let's try it, you know, a different way kind of thing. And, you know, who knows? I could have gone on for, you know, hours and hours and hours sort of in the wrong direction. So yep. how do you how do you course correct, you know, kind of quickly as you're going? And without sort of being physically together at some level, it's very difficult to do. And we'll see how that ultimately ends up. I, I heard a curious your although you're asking the questions. I I, <laughs> I heard a I heard a presentation the other day um, on how the metaverse will affect our ability to do work. And I just found it a little too futuristic for me. But, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm missing something. In other words, can we actually create an alternate universe called the metaverse where we can sit at home in our VR and have a similar feeling to being in a, the same physical environment? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that yeah. is something that we talk about. And we've, we've actually had someone on this podcast about talking a lot about the metaverse. Mm. Um, it is an interesting concept, right? That you're sitting with a VR glasses on and that you're somehow interacting with people. It, it may end up that way, but at some point there has to be some real physical, you know, ability yeah, to hum do anything. Human beings are, are innately human and are social creatures. Now, I would say some of the stuff you're doing is awesome with literally virtual reality and being able to design and give people an immersive experience about what they're planning about physical space. That is absolutely a big trend. I think you guys are on the forefront of that. It's really, um, it's inspiring to hear you talk about it. And I know you're excited about it. It's really, really, I think that the, the next level of what, you know, a firm like yours, a big architectural firm should be doing with clients, because as you know, better than I do, most clients, even the good ones that are in, let's say, commercial real estate, can't visualize what yeah. you can visualize as an architect or what you spend your days, your people spend your days and weeks on. I mean, it just, it's hard for, for many. Yep. So between that and the whole, you know, um, integrated project delivery thing, which is separate but also interesting, those things are, I think, a big part of our future together. Yeah. And, and it's, um, you know, they're, the ability to have clients make decisions and then ultimately, you know, whether it's yes or no, or, hey, I do like in the direction this is going, it provides instantaneous feedback. And there's a lot of less wasting of time, let's call it, 100%. that we're doing. It's a great way of doing it. Listen, to that point, I was so enamored I recently sat with one of our designers and our designers are really space planners and, and they they're specifiers of the product, right? Mm -hmm. And so as they're working with, there was a, a designer there, a, the client and our person, and they're specifying product, but it's in a 3D parabolic software program. The client is saying, well, let's change those skins in the hallway to more of a veneer. And can you change the color a little? 
and it's all happening in real time, right? And so that client, when they're done with that meeting, are like, oh my God, that's my stuff. Yeah, that's they exactly walk away. how they I want exactly it. What it. And is. literally, it spits out a bill of materials and tells you exactly what it's going to be. And based on their contract pricing, here's your pricing for that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And it's like, that is the future of our industry in the, in the commercial interior space. Absolutely. Um, so <clears throat> let's talk just a little bit about sort of the future of Danker, right? We spoke a lot about furniture, you know, and there's obviously a lot much more um, to Danker itself. You know, where do you see the industry itself going, whether that's on the furniture side or more on, the, you know, whatever logistics side, where do you see your, you know, the, the, the dealer lines, all of that sort of stuff? Where do you see that going? In the so one of the big trends um, that, it was happening a little pre-pandemic and is definitely going to happen post-pandemic is consolidation. Mm -hmm. So in our world, the the regional distributors, uh, the commercial interiors companies are getting larger. The combination of Miller and Knoll to create Miller and Knoll um, is creating a challenge at the distribution level of who, who combines with who, who doesn't get the line and who becomes bigger. So that's an industry trend I think you're going to see across, and that's already happening across the industry. But beyond the furniture lens of just, you know, hey, who's getting bigger and who's going to be the biggest Miller Knoll dealer or the biggest steel case dealer, beyond that, it's this idea of an interiors integrator. And so where should we as a company, I mentioned earlier, if I had architecture, furniture, technology, and logistics, and they were equal size businesses, that would be nirvana for me, right? We are, we are scratching the surface on being a true AV integrator or a workplace technology company. We've gotten some really nice projects because of our relationships, but we are not a $500 million AV integration company, right? We may be someday. And it's not because that's just an interesting business that we're interested in it. It's because it comes together in the commercial interior space. And if you can coordinate the AV integration with the furniture, with the architecture, including the sound and sound attenuation and all the things you do with architectural walls and you know STC ratings and you put all that together, now we're creating a full package of the interior that is something that is seamless, right? It comes together. It's thought ahead of time in a very seamless and and cohesive and complementary way. All too often, gosh, I can tell you that we could pick on the architects, but I could pick on the AV integrators. I could pick on a lot of people about what they didn't think about before the furniture was in and how we're trying to augment or move the furniture or the wall or change the drywall or is there backing in the drywall to support the, you know, the big screen. I mean, all those things are just, it's the details and, and the is, details the, really those matter. Those things are tough. Listen, as the architect that has to specify, sometimes we have to decide, you know, where all of all the wiring is going to come up in the floor well, be, well before the design is complete. And boy, do you hope. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 18 weeks later that you got it right, you know, oops, it turns out that's not, not where it's supposed to be. Yep. You know, we, now we got to go underneath and bother the tenant underneath and move, move stuff in their ceiling. So it's yep. a, it's a tough one. So as we wrap up, uh, is there anything uh, that we haven't covered that, that you'd like to, that you'd like? Gosh, um, I love the future of where, you know, you and I have spent some time talking even in this podcast about where the industry is going. Um, to me, that's really fascinating. Um, no, we covered we covered a lot of ground in a awesome. fairly short period yeah, of time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Steve, thank you so much for being my guest here on the Anti-Architect Podcast. 
Um, you are an amazing leader um, with an amazing team. And, and I'll, I'll mention Kevin Clyer and Bob Rigby, you know, some of the other people that I know on your team that are that are, are, are great people and had to throw out a little plug for them. Listen, we got the best of the best. That's one. It's not about me. It's about the team that we've created. And those are two of many that have done and made our company pretty awesome. So I'm very, very proud of everybody. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I, I hope the audience, you know, learned a bit about sort of the world that you live in. And kind of how we how we interact uh, with designers and architects. So, um, you know, please visit Danker.com, their Instagram, their LinkedIn, anything else that you'd want to plug? No, keep an eye out for us and um, say good things about us. That's all. I, that's all. I, we Kevin says Kevin talks a lot about you know we want to be the best supporting actor or actress, right? Like that. That's that's ultimately our goal, right? We don't we don't need to take the lead. We just need to be able to support everybody. We manage all the details, so you don't have to. That's great. Well, thank you again for being here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yep. Thank awesome. you very much.